Everybody. Welcome to the January 30th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the Azucar Bakery being the subject of a religious discrimination complaint filed at the Colorado Department of Regulatory Agencies. At issue is the baker's refusal to write an anti-gay message on a cake shaped like a Bible. Patty Calhoun from Westward. Now, we saw the other side and probably a comparison with the uh, baker that refused the same-sex marriage wedding cake, but this is a different kind of situation. What do you think? Well, it's clearly set up almost like the flip side of the masterpiece cake issue when the Lakewood baker didn't want to make a cake for a gay wedding. This is a little different, though, because it wasn't that she was refusing to serve serve anyone. What she was refusing was to write certain words on the cake and she even offered to give him frosting so he could make his frost his own cake so to speak uh, and instead he refused. We're going to see a lot of these complaints as they go but it just she's a really wonderful woman at Asukar Bakery. She we've worked with her at different events at Westwood in the past. She is such a great success story and I think she tried to split hairs here and accommodate everyone and I hope it works out for her. David Kopel with the Independence Institute and DU Law School. You're one of our two esteemed lawyers in the panel today. Uh, what's your take on the situation? The, all the, the bakery uh, controversies show the triviality and absurdity to which the pro and anti-gay people have taken a really good concept from original civil rights law. Back in the 1950s, black people who say were traveling, driving interstate, had trouble finding gas stations where they could use the restrooms had trouble finding restaurants where they could get served and, and eat inside rather than having to take out. And there's actually something called the Green Book that people would buy, which would tell you, oh, you know, you're going through Fort Lauderdale, here's where you can get served, here's where you can use the restroom. That was a real problem in people's practical lives. We do not have a problem in this country of if you want a cake for your gay wedding, you want to make somebody a participant in your wedding, and one baker won't, doesn't want to do it, you don't really have trouble finding another baker. And likewise, you know, if you want to write some anti-gay message on a cake, write it yourself. Bakers ought to have the choice to refuse to the same speech, that free speech rights that other people have, which is to choose not to speak. And a wedding cake is an artistic form of speech, and so is a anti-gay cake. Free speech for all bakers all the time. Ben Fields, uh, attorney of the Greenberg Traurig, also a longtime state lawmaker, uh, the second of our esteemed lawmakers, the t uh, or t attorneys at the table. Uh, what do you think about the situation? You know, I agree with David in one part. This uh, this story resonates with me because as a as a kid, when when my dad was in the military, we'd drive from duty post to duty post. We had instances where we'd go places and the restaurants wouldn't serve us, and my parents actually used to ask if they would at least send some food out the back door to feed the kids if they didn't want to serve the entire family. So this whole sort of tension between public accommodations and freedom of speech resonates with me. I think it has been trivialized in the instance of baking cakes. 
um, and who provides what cake to under what circumstances. I'm a little concerned in this most current one because there's also a factual dispute because um, the, 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 the baker is now claiming I didn't want to put certain words on the cake and the people who requested the cake are saying no, 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 we didn't want any anti-gay slogans on the cake. We wanted um, Bible verses um, inscripted mm -hmm. on the cake. So that's going to be something to, to figure out. One thing that no one's talking about that we ought to keep our eyes on, you know, the state is currently in the process. There's an open posting for the new executive director of the Colorado Civil Rights Division. And so that's the division that's investigating these matters. And I'm just hoping that some of these ongoing controversies don't impact or impair both the quality and the nature of the applicants for the job and how the job is actually filled. Susan Green, editor with ColoradoIndependent.com. Thanks for joining us. Uh, wrap it up for us. I think this customer, Bill Jack, um, ha who is involved with, I love this name, Worldview Academies. <laughs> I just, I love that name so much, just like I love the name Masterpiece Bakery. Um, did the baker here, Marjorie Silva, a huge favor. I think her business has gone up. She's become somewhat of a local baking hero, and actually national and international baking hero. And um, when I need a cake next to order, I'm calling her. And she'll have plenty of business, Bible cake or not. Yeah. Denver police are looking into the death of 17-year-old Jessica Hernandez, who was shot by two officers while driving a stolen car through an alley in the Park Hill neighborhood. Police Chief Robert White and Denver's Independent Monitor have launched separate investigations of both the incident and the policies of using deadly force when a moving vehicle is involved. Uh, Patty, this story has evolved through the week. Uh, we've had different protests involved, even issues within the protests. Um, what, do you, what do you make of at least the investigations from both the police and the Denver Independent Monitor? Well, I can't think of an incident in Denver that has had more of an outcry. We have over a thousand comments on the posts we've done uh, at Westward. And what, mostly now we know, so what we know is what we don't know. It is incredible how the facts keep shifting on this. We know that the cops didn't know that this was a 17-year-old girl, uh, a Latina, gay, as she was driving. They just knew there was someone in a, uh, in a car, stolen car. But this is also a girl who, if you look, was writing poetry, was working with the Art with Ashes program, had a very tough life, was trying to pull out of it. So we're going to know a lot more about her background. Um, and we know she'd been in trouble with the law before, but that doesn't mean she should be shot dead. What we're f going to find out also is how much the city, Denver Police Department, shoot at a lot of moving cars. This is not the first person who was killed while driving a stolen car this year. Denver does seem to use deadly force against moving vehicles more than any other Denver, uh, any police department, and that's going to come out in the investigations, I think. Denver also doesn't have all its cars equipped with cameras. In fact, very few are, which is really unusual for a major metropolitan police department where, you know, they want to get cameras on the individual officers, but the cars don't have them, and that's another issue. So Nicholas Mitchell, the independent monitor, may be the busiest man in Denver, Colorado right now, because this is not the only investigation he is looking into. He's also still working on the sheriff's department complaints. So he will be doing an investigation. We're going to have another one from the Denver police. I hope we don't have one from the Justice Department, but right now there's a move to invite the Justice Department mm -hmm. in to look at Denver. That came up six years ago when we were having problems with the police department, and I think right now we would prefer not to be under the federal guide guidelines, but instead seeing if we can clean up our own house. There's several moves forward on that. I think we'll probably see 
a renewed attempt to not have the Denver DA in charge of investigating police shootings, but an independent doing that. We see Paul Lopez is also going forward to introduce a bill in the um, city council to improve the Office of Independent Monitors staff, just beef that up. So there can, there's some changes that are going to be made, but the number of investigations right now in Denver on different cases is incredible. I don't know how, how there's anyone left who can do the investigation. <laughs> it certainly seems to be the challenge in Denver right now. Uh, David, uh, earlier in the week, the Denver Police Department put on their Facebook page uh, seemingly a screenshot of their policy of when to shoot at a moving vehicle and highlighted certain parts of it. Didn't offer a whole lot of explanation there, and maybe there, there was further that I just didn't see. When you see something like that from a police department, that, that kind of like, you know, here's our policy, are, are they trying to illuminate that they were doing right before these investigations happened? What, what do you think about that? Well, they were putting out their policy, which is a, for the public to know about, which is a good one, and the policy is don't shoot at a moving car unless it's a, a life-threatening emergency. And if the, what the police have said is true, and the only reason to think it's not is a claim by one of the passengers in the stolen car. Uh, but that, that's why we have an independent monitor, for one thing, to, to investigate that. But if the police description is accurate, of course it was an emergency. The law is well established that a moving automobile is just as much of a deadly weapon as a firearm or a bomb or a sword. When you were driving a car at somebody trying to hit them, you are engaged in an attempted murder. And anybody who is the victim of that has the right to use deadly force when no lesser force will suffice to protect yourself. And that's a police officer, and police officer lives matter just as much as everybody else's life. And so when I, when you see all these people who are rushing to blame the police and coming at them with a presumption of guilt which seems to have a pretty weak factual foundation at least so far. To me, that eliminates them as anybody credible in the future on issues of police use of, de of force. And of course, there have been a lot of problems with police use of force in, in the Denver Police Department. Uh, but these people who are coming after the Denver Police for what overwhelmingly looks like a life-saving necessary use of force in self-defense against an attempted homicide, uh, I think, are immolating their credibility. Penn, Dave brings up the point about the, the folks that are coming after the police here, but admittedly, the police have offered at least three different variations of the story, and I get it that if you have, there's always going to, it's going to be evolving from the morning of to that date, everything else, but it, ha it hasn't been crystal clear. Patty talked about there isn't cameras, there, at least that car didn't have a dashboard camera. Um, is there some inconsistencies that go beyond just um, the eyewitness that David talks about? You know, I think there are, and I think that's the problem here. And, and But part of it is, I think, is innocent and understandable. If you've got six police officers on the scene standing in six different places, they probably legitimately saw six different things, and they'll describe it differently. But, but part of what happens is when you get this sort of a tragic outcome, there's a police officer who's injured, there's a young woman who's, who's been killed, um, people tend to evaluate it and look at it and say, all right, this was the first story put out. Now this account is put out. Now this account is put out. And they're all by police officers, and they don't match up. And then when you have one of the passengers, and their most recent account was we were stopped, they fired into the car, 
and when she was killed was why she lost control and why it went forward to hit the police officer. That puts a whole other spin on all of this. And so I think the best advice to all of us as a community is sort of slow down for a minute. Uh, this is a tragic situation. Let the monitor do its job. Let the police department go ahead and investigate. And at some point, some, some coherent version of the facts should come out. The most difficult thing is if we never find out what really happened, which could be the result. And then we're going to be, you know, flying off of a bunch of assumptions. But, no, this is a tough one. And, and you look at it on its face and you have to ask yourself, why is a 17-year-old girl dead um, over a potential car theft? I, we're just fortunate that some of the other passengers in the car weren't also killed. Susan, as uh, Penn alluded to, we've seen uh, a lot of reaction, and there's been protests regarding this. And frankly, even this was all by itself without anything happening last year, we probably see some protests, people asking questions of the community. But considering what this community and really the United States has come from the last year or so, this isn't going to go away anytime soon. No. One, one thing I want to note is the, um, the bulk of the controversy regarding the Denver Safety Department in the last several years has been around the Sheriff's Department and its treatment in the jail. Um, the excessive force cases have generally been around that and not the cops. When I moved here to actually cover the city, it was about the cops mm -hmm. and the police. And I, I think by all accounts, um, you know, it, it's policies and its management have changed. And included among those policies is this amendment passed in 2008 um, which is a, a policy adopted by most, most major cities, don't shoot at a moving car. So we, number one, we know we have a problem here because this is the fourth shooting at a moving car by Denver police in seven months. Number two, um, in reaction to what, what Dave said, it's, uh, he said there's this presumption of guilt um, against the cops. We do know from lots of investigations, including the Marvin Booker investigation, the death of, of Paul Childs, that that law enforcement officers actually do sometimes not tell the truth about these things. What we also know is the independent monitor hardly ever finds fault um, with safety officials, and so his independence is questioned. And we also know that the DA, Mitch Morrissey, who's ending his third term, has never prosecuted um, anyone for excessive force. So the need for an independent prosecutor, I think, is perfectly legitimate here. A bill introduced in the state legislature this week would make Colorado the fifth state in the union to have a Death with Dignity Act. If passed, the proposal would allow terminally ill patients to seek medical assistance in ending their lives. David, this issue's always been uh, controversial, but was most recently in the news because of the woman in Oregon who um, chose to end her own life after in her terminally ill situation. Is Colorado ready for this law? Do you think it's, there's enough support to actually see this become law? I, I hope not, uh, and, and certainly with, since it does exist in other states, that's something that, that the committee hearings should, can go into and find out the experience. But when you look at the places that have had it longer, uh, like the Netherlands, you see a really horrific slippery slope where it's not just, you know, I, I'm dying of cancer and, and it's very painful, I'm going to die in, in 10 weeks anyway, so I want to end my life now. In the Netherlands, they have a lot of elderly ill patients being in effect involuntarily killed you know with, without without their consent without their family's consent and it's gone even further where they're now they kill newborns as well in the Netherlands and that's what when you when you start saying the doctors instead of trying to help keep the patient alive have a role in 
killing the patient, not just withdrawing life support, but actually killing the patient. You can certainly see cases, as, as like the Oregon case you mentioned, where that you can see the argument for that, but I'd say the, the experience of Europe ought to make us very, very cautious about starting down that road. Uh, Penn, anything getting through a uh, legislature as Republicans on one side, Democrats on the other, with very thin majorities and a moderate Democratic governor is going to be very nuanced to get through. So, I mean, even very popular ideas aren't going to get through this legislative session. This is rife with issues. Does that have any chance of even getting through one of the two houses? Yeah, I think it does. And, and, and David's concerns notwithstanding, I'm not familiar with the Netherlands, but one of the things, and we have to commend Representative Lois Court for bringing this, because I think it's a really well thought out proposal, regardless of what happens to it. But the way this bill is structured, um, it is not physician-assisted suicide. So the patient actually has to, one of the four major conditions is, you have to have a, a life, you know, a terminal condition. Two doctors have to certify that you have less than, I think, six, six months to live. The patient has to be capable of administering the drug or the, the, or the, or the, the substance that's going to, to terminate um, uh, the person's life. And there has to be a, a, some sort of medical verification that the patient is, is competent and, and mentally capable of rationally making the decision. The other thing that's real interesting in the legislation is actually built into the bill, there's a form that the patient has to execute. And one of them says, number, it's, it's, one of them is three options. I've told my family um, and they've consented to this. Um, I choose not to tell my family and this is my own decision or I have no family and this is the decision I'm making. So it, I, I think this is a pretty well thought out approach it appears to ensure the terminal nature of the situation, that the patient is capable of understanding their circumstances, and there is a provision to allow family to be involved or at least some sort of check that the patient has touched base or consciously chosen not to touch base with family. We'll see what happens, but I think it's a pretty thoughtful measure. Susan, pro or con or this, um, it's going to be a hot potato if it makes it all the way to Governor Hickenlooper's desk. Do you, think he see, do you think he wants to see it make it there? Oh, that's a great question. I really don't, um, given what's what's happened with him and the death penalty. Mm -hmm. um, but it, I, I, I agree um, it's a sticky issue. I think it's a more sticky issue among Republicans than Democrats. But it's interesting because it, there's probably a, there is a split in the Republican Party over this. I mean, this is kind of a, one of those liberal, libertarian issues. And... Um, one thing about Governor Hickenlooper is he cares about what the public thinks, and he cares about polls, and the polls show that Coloradans like this. And like it or not, we do have this kind of don't tread on me, you know, tradition in the state. We have pot, we have gay marriage. The former Hemlock Society, which is now called, I think, Compassion and Choices, is located here. Um, we had a former governor, Dick Lamb, who said old people have a duty to die. Um, and this is not a conversation that's new in this state. It's just post um, Jack Kevorkian. I think it, it has, you know, when you've got Lois Court and a, a bill, as Penn said, that's really pretty airtight here, um, you know, I, I think it's time for a renewed discussion. Patty, is something this volatile make it all the way to Governor Hickelberg? It, it might. It depends on 
obviously all the other volatile issues on whether or not anything will come out of the legislature this year. But I do think it's absolutely time for Colorado to have a discussion of this. We've had discussions of this before. Certainly Dick Lamb with his We All Have a Duty to Die speech back in the 80s. And when the Hemlock Society moved here, to, they have pushed it periodically through with compassion, compassionate choice in choices. So I think the bill as written is really smart, really sensitive, and I think, especially as the population ages, this is an issue that people are going to want to talk about more and more and more, have some choice in this part of their life and how they end it. Let's get a quick take on this final topic. The Colorado Health Exchange is making headlines again this week as House Republicans propose the bill to repeal the insurance program. This comes on the heels of a report that more than 3,600 plans have been canceled due to design malfunction on the exchange's website. Uh, Penn, what's your quick take? Um, well, history has shown us that this is not a perfect bill, neither is the Affordable Care Act, but I think most people feel it's better than the alternative and the problem in Colorado. And the reason the Bill 1066 was killed in committee yesterday is because Republican legislators who put it forward had no alternative to the exchange. And when you have 121,000 people already enrolled in health insurance through the exchange, you better have an alternative before you scrap what's there. Susan, your thoughts on both of the proposal and obviously how it died in committee? Yeah, well, legally, the alternative is the feds take it over. So I don't think that's really ideal for Republicans either. And I also think the numbers are interesting here. The 3,600 out of 121,000 is less than 3%. And that's actually an inflated number because open enrollment is still open until February 15th. So this is not like an epidemic of glitches here. This is a hugely complicated new program. It's only a year old. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. And I think if you look at it statistically, the glitches um, are fairly minor. Patty, uh, Rome wasn't built in a day, but this viaduct has had its own issues. What do you think? Well, Colorado was fast out of the gate to set this up, and I'm glad we set it up so that we are not at the mercy of the feds on it. But I do think I don't think the repeal of Connect for Health will go through, but I do think probably the measure that would like to get an end, put an end to the bonuses for the people who run it, that may see a lot of support this year. And the audit. I mean, mm-hmm. it, everybody kind of agrees it's new. It should be out. There are glitches. Right. There's no private business that would say no to an audit. And so if Democrats and Republicans basically agree there's room for it here. David, wrap it up for us. As the Huns showed, it only takes one day to burn Rome to the ground. (laughs) And that's what happened on the day that that, uh, BFD, as uh, Joe Biden put it, uh, Obamacare was signed into law. It took a flawed system and made it much worse. It moves in the direction of taking choices away from people, hurting them like cattle and automatons into these very narrow set of available plans. What we need is more health care freedom, much greater ability for people to choose the plans that are right for them. I think somehow I knew that Rome thing was going to come right around the barn. Uh, time for our uh, favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, as always, start us off. The prudy pants at DIA <laughs> who have banned any pot souvenirs, any T-shirts with references to pot in the shops there. If DIA is going forward with this crazy scheme to turn all of the great terminal, the Jefferson Terminal, into a huge shopping mall, they are going to need every bad souvenir they can get their hands on. Yeah, it seems like cross-purposes. You want to make some money, that's these pot T-shirts. That's where it's at. David? Well, and, and on that, the, to take away the the uh, central area is where you go through security, which is actually a convenient place to do it. The plan is not to make security go faster, but just to hide it more from the public so it looks like delays are less. Uh, 
a terrible idea on so many direct. It's sort of what DIA has all been all about, right back from the beginning, with its its bogus claims of Federico Pena being built uh, and all the. It's a terminal of lies, and this just adds to it. <laughs> a terminal of lies. If that's not trademarked yet, you should look into that. Uh, uh, Penn. It's the greatest airport in the world. Um, <laughs> Don't mess with that airport. There you go. Uh, it, you know, mine is sort of related to this. Uh, I'm sort of concerned and kind of annoyed that um, a number of elected officials keep criticizing the decision by Coloradans to legalize marijuana. I think we spent less time watching public officials critique the decision and figure out the best ways to implement and ensure everybody's safety with regard to the legal use, we'd be far better off. Susan. I love the disgrace of the week so much. It's so cathartic. And <laughs> my disgrace this week is Comcast, um, an employee calling a customer, changing his first name to A-hole because he canceled his cable service. Um, that just hits so close to home. And I think any of us who have sat on the phone um, on, on uh, hold with Comcast or even maybe dealt with some of their... Um, some of their employees, uh, it, it, it just picks a scab a little bit. Yeah. That, that indeed. Uh, say something nice about somebody, the hardest part of the show. Patty? Uh, this is easy. I want to say something nice about Step 13, which is really a great program. Uh, I'll put a hand out for someone we were trying to help, and although it didn't quite work out, they were unbelievably accommodating. Great program. David? Uh, Mitt Romney for deciding not to run for president because I think he's a, a good man in many ways uh, but would not have been a very good president. Penn. And easy for me also, just a tribute to a real pioneer we lost. Dr. Bernard Gibson Sr., uh, Colorado's first African-American surgeon, passed away this past week and he will be greatly missed. Susan. Um, the VA actually. Uh, there was a case involving a veteran in Grand Junction who was um, clearly mistreated by the Veterans Administration there. Um, he died in, in December after botched liver care. Um, and there was no response from the VA for a long, long time. And yesterday, the Office of Inspector General has agreed to investigate. And I think there are a lot of folks who were close to Roger or who followed his story who are really happy to hear it. Not a lot of times the VA has made the nice side of the show. It's good to see. Well, that is all the time we have tonight. Thank you very much for tuning in. Remember that if you missed any part of the show or want to catch our web-exclusive segment, CIO Postgame, check out CPT12.org or YouTube. I also send out our takes via Twitter, so please feel free to follow me, at DitaZuti. And uh, uh, just a, a quick shout-out to all the different fans we hear from, whether it's from Twitter or phone calls or, frankly, just might be seeing us in the store. I know they, they bump into Patty or all of us at different times. that have always been supportive of us. We really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's what's kept us going now into our 20s third season and we don't forget the kind of impact that we've been able to make because of your support. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.